0: It could well trigger a new era for our national game. The Gaelic Players Association met formally for the first time in Belfast last night.
1: Players probably feel it's time that maybe some were their ideas were heard. The Breakaway Gaelic Players Association and the GAA hierarchy seem set on a collision course tonight.
2: And the official recognition agreement between the GAA and GPA uh,
1: provides for um, joint commercial ventures. The player development programme that's in place is something that's vital to the well-being of our players. You do your utmost to, to serve the members and uh, that excites me a whole lot.
2: Every day, you know, we're working with players. They're the centre of everything that we do. You're very welcome along to the Players' Voice. I'm Kieran McSweeney, and I'm, I'm joined as always by my co-host, Leash Footballer Colin Begley. Colin, how are you? Good.
1: Good. Kieran, yourself, man?
2: Very well now. And look, we're talking at a time where we see now GA pitches around the country back open, club training back up and running. A real air of positivity there, and that that's what we want to focus on on the Players' Voice this week. We would usually talk to a player or players about different issues, different aspects of their lives. But what we've decided to do this week, and we're delighted that she was able to take the time, is talk to Professor Mary Horgan. Now, Mary Horgan is on the GEA's COVID Advisory Committee. She's the president of the Royal College of Physicians. She's a consultant physician in infectious diseases and internal medicine at Cork University Hospital, a real expert in infectious diseases. And we thought it was really uh, a good opportunity when she was uh, able to take the time to talk to us about this return to play. And we know that there are players, there are coaches, there are supporters, there are parents, there are family members who have concerns about the fact that the GEA season is back up and running. And I think it's important that we get as much information as we can um, and I suppose educate ourselves and maybe help to get um, information out there that would make make it I suppose, as easy as possible for people to minimise any risks but also to give them the information to to make a decision where some may want to to opt out.
1: Yeah, and that's the most important thing, Like as a a player now who's going back myself. And as someone who's obviously been in the process of seeing this evolve, um, the RTP come back into into kind of um, design and stuff like that, I still have concerns going back in. I think every player will. Um, So for me, I think this is about getting as much information out to people about who are, who's at risk? Players probably don't see themselves as being at risk as much. It's probably more concerned about the people they're close to, um, whether that be parents, uh, partners, family members, etc. So for us to bring Mary on and, and get her to talk through the rationale behind RTP, why it's safe to do so, um, the risks that are there, the responsibilities of us that we can reduce that risk, That will then allow me as a player um, to go, Okay, I can make a decision to stay and and play or or opt out for that season, which is totally fine as well. Um, And I think we've seen over the last four to five weeks how it's kind of progressed so quickly. I'm definitely talking to players and going, how has it it gone from this to this? So to hear her discuss that will, will definitely put me at ease and I think a lot of other players too. So very excited to talk to her.
2: So we'll talk to Professor Mary Horgan in just a few moments.
1: The Gaelic Players Association representing the interests of all intercounty county players, protecting their welfare on and off the pitch and supporting their development as people.
2: Well, we're delighted to be joined now on The Player's Voice by Professor Mary Horgan and Professor Horgan is the President of the Royal College of Physicians. She's a former Dean of UCC School of Medicine and she's also a Consultant Physician in Infectious Diseases and Internal Medicine at Cork University Hospital. Professor Horgan, thanks very much for joining us, first of all, on The Player's Voice.
0: Delighted to be joining you. Um, Professor Horgan, why we wanted
2: to get you on look, it's real signs of optimism and positivity around Gaelic games at the moment. We've seen this week pitches being reopened, club teams back training, and there really is this feeling that we've turned a corner. But at the same time, there are players, both at club level and at inter county level who will have concerns and do have concerns. And I suppose that's why we wanted to talk to you as an expert in infectious diseases, maybe to allay some of those fears, put people's minds at ease, but also at the same time to talk, to be realistic about the fact that there is still and remains uh, a risk and how we can minimize that risk of uh, contracting um, of COVID-19. But first of all, a little bit about yourself, uh, Professor Horgan, you might Uh, talk to your background.
0: So I'm a Kerry woman. And I suppose I'm steeped in GAA. My father was very involved when he he taught in St. Vincent's in Dublin um, before uh, moving back to Kerry after he got married. And he was one of the founders of Borden and Oog in in Kerry. And I suppose my memory um, as a child was the phone calls just coming up to the third Sunday in September, swapping tickets from Hogan to Cusack and stand tickets and all of that um so yeah big um big ga fan my brother rossa uh, horgan is a, um, a gp in westport and is very involved in in training some of the underage uh teams there so yeah true and true uh, uh ga football i love hurling but obviously hurling in Kerry is is uh really uh, mainly an art uh but not beyond that
2: and how does one come to become an expert in infectious diseases
0: Okay, so I trained in, um, I did went to UCD for uh, my medical degree, spent a few years in um, uh, Ireland doing my basic uh, medical training and then went off to the States. Um, There was no specialty of infectious diseases um, here in in 1990 when I went. So it was exactly um, this time 30 years ago I uh, flew to St. Louis and uh, spent 7 years um training and being on the faculty of one of the major medical um centers in the US and at the time there was a lot of you know aids hiv was a, was a major major issue at the time so it really was immersing myself into um being mentored by another um, Irish guy over there, Bill Powderly, and uh, really, like like most things, you you know, you learn on the job, you get good supervision and come out with um, a specialty of infectious diseases, which... I suppose to put it in context what do, what do I do in a day to day job it 's really looking after people with fevers of unknown origin, people with bone infections, skin infections, a lot of the things that you 'd see on on a um, field of play um, meningitis, malaria HIV hepatitis that's, and tropical uh, diseases there that 's where my um, that my skill set is and how did it come
2: about that you became part of the gea's COVID 19 advisory group and, and and your background obviously in gea um, um it stands out there
0: yeah so um i'd worked with uh, dr anna falvey who you'll know um is a court man who is the uh, medical director of world rugby and he contacted me in early april and he said look what are we going to do about COVID 19 and i said look let's have a plan let's develop um, a a document and Aina took the lead on that and that was published and Sean Moffat then Sean contacted me and of course I was more than happy to uh, volunteer and lend my expertise in infectious diseases and that's where it started and Uh, Thanks to um, uh, John Horne, he had set up the uh, advisory committee on COVID-19. And again, I suppose that was that was um, early May. And I encourage them also to have a plan because, you know, it's still a time of uncertainty, but as I've said many times, we do need to live with COVID um, f- for for the foreseeable future because the only way of eradicating the disease is, is a vaccine. And while I know New Zealand have been very successful, New Zealand is twenty two, you know uh, two thousand kilometers from its nearest landmass. Ireland is not like that, so. I suppose going forward, we have to um, learn how to live with it and, I suppose, mitigate against risks. And we'll talk about those, um, you know, with with the upcoming questions that you're going to have for me. So that's, that's how I got involved. And I, I suppose on reflection, I, you know, the GAA really have been to the forefront of all the sporting organisations within Ireland of getting a plan together um, in a safe way. So safe for players, safer support staff. And safe for spectators. And look,
2: before we get on to, uh, and we have some so what I would call maybe basics around um, COVID-19 and the coronavirus. But before we get on to that, just one final question in terms of, and you mentioned um, being in contact with guys in, in World Rugby. What has the approach been like, it, it, say in comparison, Gaelic games, obviously an amateur sport versus the, the professional game, um, which World Rugby is involved in?
0: yeah I suppose there you know there are similarities but there are also differences um the ability to have a prof- you know the professionals you know i suppose they have more money to do other things uh, but saying that, I think that the amount of uh resource and work put into particularly education and the e modules that uh, the g a have done have been really outstanding um the the other big difference is that because ga sports you know you know you're amateurs and people go to work and and so have different exposures whereas the uh, professional rugby pairs tend to be i suppose socialized in smaller pods in many respects so they both bring i suppose challenges but also opportunities um and um certainly i you know and i, I hadn't you know, I I obviously go to games and all of that, um, but I hadn't re realized how big a machine the GA is and how they were able to just come together and deliver what really has been an outstanding um, learning uh, for all of the community in such a a quick period of time.
2: And look, we'll we'll come on now to. Something that I really only thought about this yesterday when we were preparing to, to speak to you, uh, Mary, um, we've been speaking about the coronavirus COVID-19 in an Irish context, I suppose, realistically since February, March time. But we've heard about it in the news, some headlines coming from from China back as far as maybe November, December. But I was asked yesterday, could I could I explain the coronavirus or COVID-19 in two or three sentences? And I was absolutely flummoxed. What is it?
0: Okay, so coronavirus, there's loads of them out there and a lot of them cause the common cold. We've seen, I suppose, Uh, two other coronavirus infections, um, MERS and SARS. People will remember SARS from about uh, 2003. And this is SARS-2, essentially. So um, it's a type of virus kind of in the same group. uh, They're RNA viruses. And so the the coronavirus, the name of it is SARS-CoV-2. And the disease it causes is COVID-19. And why it's called COVID-19 was that it was, in 2019 when it's when it was first discovered um, and that was the first reports were in late December and the virus itself was identified about 10 days later which was really really quick um as as this SARS-CoV-2.
2: And, and Mary where did it come from and how does it come how does a virus like this actually come about?
0: Yeah, so a lot of the new viruses that we see, I mean, we've seen swine flu, uh, even HIV, it goes from one species to another. And in this instance, likely the bats um, uh, cross species into humans. And while bats may be able to live with it when it crosses a species like into humans, um, it it, it it um i suppose humans have never seen this particular virus so there's no immunity and then it causes um sickness so it's really trans species uh, the virus jumps from one species to another and that's what causes the problem and
2: look finally uh, on this line of questions is we've seen a lot of said about the different symptoms but i don't think it's any harm to again emphasize what they are because i think we need to continue to obviously to watch out for those. How is it transmitted, and what are the key symptoms to be watched out for
0: oh, okay it, it's it's transmitted by either touch or by droplet transmission, so coughing, um, speaking really loudly, um touching surfaces that uh, may be infected and when um it's transmitted to somebody the vast majority of people have very mild symptoms. And I think that's really important to to remember, particularly in in the younger age group. And they're also less likely to have any bad outcomes. So 80% of people who get it um, will have very mild um, symptoms. And then about of the remaining 20%, um, they may need more oxygen support. They may need to go into hospital. And a minority of uh, people die of those that unfortunately passed on, 93% of them are over the age of 65. And the vast majority of those uh, have some other underlying, uh, you know, illnesses like blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, um, obesity, or chronic respiratory infections. So it, it's, it's kind of unusual because in the beginning, like, you know, three four months ago we didn't know a lot of this we now know a lot more than we did and what's a bit, a bit unusual is that normally children get um, infected by respiratory infections l- like influenza and so you see the impact of influenza in the very young and the very old interestingly corona virus or the um, SARS-CoV-2 seems to have little impact in children both um infecting them or they infecting others um so what we know now compared to 100 days ago is is huge and i keep on saying that there's as you said in the beginning there is no such thing as zero risk in anything we do but we know that there is lower risk um and you can lower the you know the lower risk are by age um and people who are otherwise healthy have a low risk of of getting a, or having you know needing to go into hospital or anything like that it's not zero but it's low
1: and mary just quickly on that again then the, the symptoms you mentioned before oh yeah um you just talk about how long it might take as well for these symptoms to show up because i think that's one of the big things between people wondering like it yeah. could be going around with it
0: yeah so, so just to the 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 major symptoms that people experience are a fever, a cough, shortness of breath, and interestingly, a loss of sense of taste and smell. Very occasionally, you can get some diarrhoea, but they are the major symptoms that that we um, see. And uh, usually the incubation period is a few days. Um, That's the time from exposure to actually getting symptoms is probably about five to seven days. And people tend to be infectious when they have symptoms. So when you have a cough or a fever, that's when you're most infectious to others. And that's why it's really important. that self-responsibility to yourself to get care and get tested, but also your behavior impacts your teammates in this instance um and your 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 ga community so that's why look if you have a fever and cough it's not like the old days where you could go off and tip away on on the uh, field of play um and we've all done it we've all gone to work with those not anymore because of the potential that it could be COVID, um and you can transmit it to others
2: Um, And as you said, Mary, just to to focus it in now on the return of Gaelic games. Look, and as I said, at the top of this, we're all delighted to see pitches open and people back out playing our our games. And I suppose what we want to do now is is delve into that. And I suppose in particular, I suppose even four, six, eight weeks ago, it looked like we mightn't see contact sport and including hurling football rounders handball that we wouldn't see these sports um, return in 2020 what has changed so much over the course of the last month to six weeks
0: i suppose the key change is the dramatic reduction in the number of cases in the country you know they really peaked um around you know mid to late april and since that time the number of cases has dramatically decreased and why is this Um, really because of the what they call non-pharmaceutical interventions. In other words, the things we did as people, Um, you know, the washing of the hands, social distancing, the cough etiquette, um, and more recently, um, the face mask in closed, um, uh, crowded uh, conditions. And in addition to that, the amount of testing and tracing and isolating of those who are positive. So it's, it's a combination of things and, and you'll hear people talking either about face masks or the one versus two meters. It's, it's not any individual thing. It's the summation of what we do individually or and as a population in the community combined with what the health services does, which is test and trace.
2: Right, so let's get into. There are particular concerns that maybe players, coaches, supporters, parents will have. So, so let's run run through some of those because I think that 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 would be hugely important. So clubs are back this week, and to be fair, and and I think you said it, a huge achievement to all the the Gaelic Games family for managing to get this far, um, and to have be in a position in which um, pitches can reopen this week. What do you see now? as being the the most important I suppose responsibilities that people need to take either themselves or as a as a group to ensure that the risk is minimized
0: I suppose what I would say is that that self-responsibility has a huge impact on um, the ability of the games to continue so it's it needs to be taken seriously. I think first and foremost. Uh, I know you know the the, the paperwork. Um, you know may seem onerous, and somebody mentioned God, that's a lot to do. But people need to understand it. It is serious, and if we want to, you know, stay out of where you know stay where we're at now, it, it's about um, understanding. You know what the symptoms are. What you can do to prevent um, it being spread. What you can um, do to protect yourself. Um, and when you do that individually, it has a knock-on effect, a positive knock-on effect to all your teammates and your uh, spectators. I'm sure there'll be parents listening who may be saying, oh God, "You know, my my child mightn't understand a lot of that, but that e-learning that was done, um, what well, it is really good if you understand that." And I think listening to the public health messages and to be assured that um, the GA Advisory Committee have put in as many checks and balance- balances in place that um, we can return to work, um, to, sorry, return to uh, play um, safely. So, you know, again, and, you know, I know it sounds like saying the same old thing, but that hand hygiene, the cough etiquette, do not come to play if you've got, Any of the symptoms I spoke about, particularly fever and cough, stay at home, get phone your doctor, get tested. And um, for children and even for adults, the importance of sports for mental and physical well-being cannot be um, overstated. This, you know, is uh, while, you know, this infection has changed the way we live we can't let it control us either. And that's why I think it's really important to get back. And we all know um, that, you know, we, we just need to um, try to resume normal activity of which sports is a big component.
1: Mary, you mentioned there, and I would totally agree with regards to sport being a hugely beneficial thing for, for people's wellbeing and so on and so forth. And as a player myself, now I'm back training and it's fantastic always, to be around the guys. But as also someone who would have been quite strict and stringent to the, um, you know, um, restrictions and the etiquette and stuff during the last few weeks, it feels like we're going from zero to 100 from my point of view with regards back to training and contacts so soon. But can you just give me a bit of rationale behind why uh, you've mentioned already about the cases being so low, but also playing outdoors, there's a lower risk of that, isn't there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a number of studies now, but playing um, outdoors versus indoors, or activities outdoors versus in, in um, indoors, there's probably about a twenty-fold lower risk of getting COVID which is huge. Um, when you think about it, um, you know, the fresh air you're out there, you know, the wind is blowing. Um, so your chances of picking up the infection outside is, is much lower than in a closed, closed environment. And I think that's an important thing to, um, to emphasize to all of the players.
1: And further on from that then Mary as well, obviously we had the social distancing that's been in place for the last number of weeks and months. Um, and now we're looking at probably going from the two metres to the one, but for us players going to close contact uh, in multiple occasions. Can you give a bit of logic behind that as well about why the risk isn't as high?
0: Yeah. Um, so, you know, as I said earlier, the the social distancing, the two versus one, that's, you know, in the context of all of the other things we do Um you know quite honestly it's it's really hard to live um with two meter in anything we do learning sports working and i've no doubt it'll be brought down and the science behind that is pretty inaccurate i suppose it's older science um and what i what, what where the biggest risk is as i've said before is people coming with any symptoms at all that's and while some people may have you know no symptoms at all it's not they're probably less likely to transmit the virus it's those with the fever and cough but you know you can play a sport with you know two meters apart or even one meter apart but most of the time and I suppose I'm not an expert I'm just a spectator but um, you know people you might you know uh, shoulder uh, each other and all of that but then you're going apart again um, and even when they looked at a lot of the rugby, which you would uh, think is um, high contact sports and um, their their uh, social distance was they were only together in very close contact for less than 15 minutes. Um so, look, it's a combination of, you know, don't come when you have symptoms. um you know, you're playing in the outdoors, which is lower risk. You're moving around the field uh, very quickly. You're a younger age group. You're fitter and most people don't have the risk factors that really result in worse outcomes for some of the people um who unfortunately either were hospitalized or passed yeah. on
1: actually i've made a quite a good career I was playing 2 meters apart from my man for the last <laughs> number of years Mary. so
0: i <laughs> yeah. yeah my mother my mother's from Rath Downey, so uh, we she lives in hope that Leash uh, will uh it will prevail someday. Hopefully, hopefully. Uh, Mary, uh, on
2: that point you made there about the fact that look, the play, the playing group is in that younger age group. But we did research amongst um our members, and the W G P A did research amongst their own members as well. So it, what came back to us was that seventeen percent of uh, G P A members would have um would have to consider whether they would opt to play in 2020 given their concerns. That number was higher among the WGPA um, players at 32%. But one of the interesting pieces that came back in our survey as well was that 56% of inter-county players are living with or are in close contact with a person who is considered to be in an at-risk group. So could you talk to us first of all, maybe to define what an at-risk group is and then what steps that players could take to minimise the risk that they could possibly pass this on to those people in that group?
0: Sure, and I I suppose I'd put this in the context that that's the same question I get asked with people going back to work. So a lot of your players will be in a workplace too. So the same applies there. Um, So the at-risk group, um, the older age group, you know, um, uh, over 65, um, but most of those have... Who, who ran into trouble had other illnesses what we call comorbidities and they were heart disease high blood pressure diabetes um high bmi which is if they were obese um and chronic um lung conditions so there'd be the at-risk group Below, I mean, if you look at under 50s who are healthy, otherwise healthy, their risk of having a bad outcome is very, very low. So, what can people do to, I suppose, protect those that they may be living with? And I, again, this is the same as, you know, if their teacher's gone into school or if their like, number of your players would be healthcare workers, some uh, work in, in that health environment, and the same happens there. It's about you know, going home, washing your hands and um, having your shower when you come back in, not using the facilities at, uh, from the outset um, and ensuring that if you have any symptoms at all, you call your doctor and you get tested. That's how you protect them. But it's, it's you know, the same absolutely applies when you're going back to work. Um, so it's not just even specific to sport. And I can understand where the concerns may come from some of the players returning to work because I suppose the message To date, had been one of, I suppose, fear and concern because we um, as medical professionals um, weren't absolutely sure who was risk. Were we all um, in the same boat in the beginning? We now know a lot more 100 days later than we did um, in March when the lockdown came in Ireland. And
2: something that has been raised by players as well, Mary, is the fact that, look, you look, say, for example, to the Premier League. And look, I can't stop smiling since last night with Liverpool uh, clinching the Premier League title, their first title in in, in 30 years. Um, But you look to the Premier League, which is back up and running, but the rigorous testing that the players are undergoing. You look to, say, for instance, Australian rules football, um, which obviously PGA ha- has links to over the years, where again players going through rigorous testing. You look to say golf in the United States, where the the PGA Tour is up and running. But so so rigorous testing as part of the approach. Why and explain to us why it's okay for us to and our players to return without undergoing testing.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, when it comes to testing, testing is really good with um, coronavirus if you have symptoms. Okay, so that's the the place of it. And this is this PCR testing, the, the nasal swab. If you're using it as a screening test and people will know screening from cervical screening and bowel screening and all of that, your chances of getting a positive test in the absence of symptoms is very, very low. So um, and it's only one point in time. So I could be exposed, you know, today someone could swab me. I could be negative seven days time. I'd need to be swabbed again. And I may or may not be positive at that time. So it's not the test and the, testing, the P- PCR testing is not a screening tool, it's to diagnose the infection and to test those people who've been in contact with people who are positive. So the testing that was done um, recently in in Australia um, and that Tyrone um, man, there was some question, was that even a false positive? And you know, the disruption that that can cause and did cause in, in um, in the Australian rules football so there was a, you know everything got stopped and did it need to stop maybe not if it was a false positive the so that's the pcr testing the one that you hear about um all the time and then the other one is the antibody test so that so the pcr testing is a swab the antibody testing is taking a pin prick and looking to see if you've antibodies as evidence that you've had infection in the past. The big challenge there is that we don't know for certain if you have antibodies, how long they last and will they really protect you? They probably will, but I don't see any benefit at this point in time of routinely screening as they've done in golf, in rugby. Um, I don't think it's cost effective and it may not be, you know, may not give you the right answer. However, if, you know, if somebody in a team had a cough, a fever, of course they should get tested and get followed up. And that's the position, the the place of testing at this point in time in, in just Ireland. Just one
2: more from me before I let Cullen come back in is is on golf, because it's something, the conversations that I've been involved in a couple of conversations this week, golf, outdoors, absolutely minimal contact in comparison to our sports. But you see, Um, both players and caddies getting infected on the US tour and now having to withdraw from tournaments and it's it's causing concerns uh, um, there you talk to us about that
0: yeah well I suppose if you're looking at the states the um, infection is not under control there I mean it's not even a you know a second surge it just never got controlled over there so they're living in an environment that we lived in back in March where there was you know high levels of infection initially in the community and then with outbreaks so we're looking at two very different um countries i mean we have our infection under control and of course there may be um a second wave um but if that is the case i believe that with what we have all learned to do in protecting ourselves but also the ability of our testing and tracing system to upscale again is is really key so comparing us at the moment as a country in the all in the whole of 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 ireland the all island um we're in a much better place than they are in the states where they still don't have their infection controlled in many states
1: mary you mentioned um it's something that's kind of come a bit more out in the last few weeks i think the contact tracing uh, before was probably something we would seen as what the medical professionals would do from their end but um I think there is a little bit more of onus now being put on the people to start recording their own contacts with people. Um, I think there's an app coming out soon as well. How important is that going forward that people in society players start to make sure they're recording the contacts they have? Um, obviously, if someone gets sick, then to have that information there available will be very, very useful.
0: Yeah, I think it's really important. I mean, we all meet a lot of people, but I think people are more conscious of not having too many contacts yeah. Um the key to controlling the infection and really, you know, what we're essentially doing is protecting the, the hospitals from being overwhelmed. And thankfully, that never happened in this country is to if you become symptomatic, that you're well able to say, look, these are the five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 people that I um, interacted with. And, you know, the interaction is, you know, has it's, it's more than 15 minutes um, at close contact. Um, just give it I mean the the whole idea of of testing and tracing is not punitive in any way it's to protect the individual so that we can look after them and make sure that they stay healthy or if they need care that we provide that but also to protect their their family and, and the community in which they work and that in this instance includes players. So it is important and most people would have a fair idea of, of um, who they've had contact with um, in, in the um, recent, you know, in, in the past few days and the period and the contact tracers are really experienced at, at getting that information. Just another
2: one that, that, um, springs to mind and has come up and you mentioned earlier Mary the fact about the the virus uh, and how you can trans or the, how the virus transmits and the fact that it can come off surfaces um mm-hmm. how long does it live on a surface and I'm t- thinking particularly from the point of view of catching a football catching a slitter catching yeah. a hurley bibs cones all of those kind of things on pitches um any concerns around those
0: I- not really. You know, the risk with those is low. And um, I spoke with my colleague, uh, Professor Martin Cormican, you probably have heard his name. He's um, my, a clinical microbiologist and infection pre- prevention and control specialist. And he said, look, at the end of the game, you just wash down the, the, the equipment and let it dry. And uh, it's unlikely that we'll stay on those surfaces for any period of time. So it's doing what we probably should have been doing all the time, cleaning equipment. And, you know, uh, and um, reducing the spread of any infection. And that includes influenza. We've seen mumps. All of those have decreased, given all of the things that we've been doing up to now. There was an outbreak of mumps, um, you know, within the younger age group in universities and all that. Once social distancing was brought in, that all stopped. So I think it's being practical about what you can do. But like, look after the equipment like, like we we should be doing. So that risk is going okay. to be low
1: and just before we move on to maybe some other things as well um we've mentioned already and, and a part of the return to play has mentioned cool camps and i'm sure a lot of parents are very excited but some also may be very nervous about um returning to these but you've mentioned some of the information already Mary about younger kids obviously not being as affected as badly from the virus um but i've coached in in cool camps for a while um numbers in tight spaces um you know and a lot of younger kids who may not understand or appreciate the social distancing as much. But um, can you just go over again why it's, it's safer to return to that at the moment and why parents can be reassured that it's okay to allow their kids to, to join in these uh, camps?
0: um well i suppose first and foremost the you know as i said before uh, physical activity in children is so important to ingrain it at an early stage um but a lot of information is coming through like from the science community on um the impact of covid-19 on children and adolescents and numerous studies now show uh, that their risk of either getting the infection or even if on the you know occasion that they do get it they do not seem to have um, have any bad in, uh, impact and when I was even talking to my um, pediatric infectious disease colleagues they just don't see it they don't see it coming to the hospital and um, you know there is a syndrome that you can put it's, it's really really uncommon and it is absolutely treatable uh, you can't keep social distancing kids it's just not and the only instance I would say you know because they're going to run around together but the you know the impact of you know of the of a neg- like the bad Im- impact of COVID on that group is so so low so they're in a very low risk group from for bad um, effect from COVID-19 and I certainly based on the knowledge that we have at this point in time think that the benefits of going back to sports for children Without social distancing, far outweigh the risks, and all my colleagues in pediatrics um, within the College of Physicians would absolutely support that.
1: I suppose it's it's up to a large role is placed on parents just to ensure that kids are sticking to the, you know, the hygiene guidelines, washing of hands, the coughing, those kind of areas first. Uh, to do that, yeah, really
0: nice. yeah, and and um, to be honest, I think kids have been particularly good at doing yeah. um, the hand washing and the cough etiquette, and I think pointing out to parents what they should be doing. Um, so I, you know, it's it's you know reiterating simple messages. Yeah, that's it. You know, wash your hands. If you're sick, do not come to training.
2: Yeah. Um, Mary, you've you've been really good with your time, and uh, just wanted to a final couple of questions before we we finish up. We have, I say, club games and club training and pitches open at the moment. Um, Come September, October, um, we're looking at inter-county season starting back up. Look, it's not going to be the same. We're not going to have 40, 50, 60,000 people um, at games in stadiums. But what's realistic, or is it too early to tell? Because we've seen how things have changed so quickly over the course of the last four, six weeks that projecting that far ahead might might mightn't even have any benefit.
0: I I would absolutely agree with that. I think we're still in on certain times um when we come into uh the autumn um you know we see more um viruses like you know influenza and RSV come in. So I you know sometimes that muddies the picture a little bit. I think it's too um early to predict what's going to happen. I'm a great woman for planning. Um, and, but, and plans can change. So it's always better to have a plan in place um, and you potentially can use it, but you can also cancel what you can do. So I think put a plan in place, but be um, uh, be ready to change that plan if required.
1: September, October, you mentioned before being influenza and kind of flu season down to that kind of stage. Is there an increased risk at that time of the year? I know some players have, have discussed this Um Lower immune system, or are obviously playing and training at that time of the year, is there a higher risk um, to contracting COVID nineteen during that time because of these reasons?
0: Uh, not particularly. I think they'll be at risk like anybody else. What I would suggest, and um, well, I'm a big advocate of influenza vaccine, and I think particularly this coming season, it would be very advisable for people, um, that it obviously includes um, healthy young players, to um, to get vaccinated. And look,
2: yesterday at, uh, I think it was at an Oireachtas committee, um, uh, another expert in infectious diseases, Paddy Mallon, spoke about the fact that he believed it was inevitable that we were going to get a second wave. Um, Your thoughts on that, do you feel it is inevitable? And if it is, will it it mean the country having to lock down as it has done
0: during this first wave? So... Yeah. is it inevitable and you know that that gives absolute certainty i would say we probably will expect a second wave the big difference between the first wave and a potential second wave is first of all we're much more prepared secondly we know much more about the virus and where it happens in the country because we know where the outbreaks have been particularly in in older residential care facilities and and meat processing plants so we have The ability to um, upscale all our contact tracing and um, uh, testing um, as required. So, and therefore protect our hospital system. In my view, and I suppose this this is only a view um, because of the uncertainty that. I doubt we'll go into the major lockdown that we had already. I think if there is an outbreak, there may be you know a more focused um, uh, restrictions as happened in Germany recently sure. so um, i I think that 's most likely uh, what will happen
2: and look mary a final question from myself and and I'll leave Colin with the last word in it then but and I know this might be a difficult thing to do, but again, going back to the fact that we have we we'll have players coaches, supporters, parents listening. The, what, the, and we talk about the risk and minimising the risk, but can you quantify what the risk is or is that too difficult a, a thing to do in terms of if you could say on a scale of one to 10, what is the risk now with returning to sport?
0: Um, well, uh, well, put it this way. I mean, if if um, I my my kids don't um, play a huge amount of sport, but would I have any problem with uh, sending them back to sport? Absolutely not um the risk i mean if you want to there is no such thing as zero risk but there is low risk and the low risk is in younger people who have no other major underlying health conditions and that's what we know as of now
2: and colum as a as a club player with Stradbally inter county player with leisha your last thoughts on it
1: no i just think i think the last point there um like the reason for this kind of podcast is just trying to inform players about the information they need to make a decision it'll come down to the person the individual themselves in the end so for me it's been very informative I can identify what I need to do myself and what my teammates need to do with themselves as well to help reduce the risk I think um, if everyone can focus on that it's hugely hugely important that we're kind of engaging socially again and the well-being part of playing sports is hugely beneficial too so um, hopefully, this will inform people and help them make the most, I suppose, guided decision they can. And uh, Mary, thanks so much for, for coming on. Um, really appreciate it. Some fantastic information there. Thanks very much for what you've done also in in getting us to hear uh, yourself and the COVID 19 advisory committee.
0: And I think just to say that this will be an ongoing monitoring situation, and I think that should lead to you know reassurance with the players and spectators. We aren't going to just say, oh, we've done the job, off we go. This is a fluid situation and things may change one way or the other, as we've seen already, and Kieran mentioned that um, at the start of the podcast.
1: The Gaelic Players Association, representing the interests of all inter-county players protecting their welfare on and off the pitch and supporting their development as people.
2: So Cullum, there are the views of Professor Mary Horgan. She's an infectious diseases expert. She's on the GEA's COVID Advisory Committee. She's the president of the Royal College of Physicians, a consultant physician in infectious diseases and internal medicine at Cork University Hospital. As a club player, as a guy who has involved in coaching, has been involved in cool camps, as an inter-county player, your thoughts and how you're feeling having heard what she's had to say?
1: You know, so straight away, Kieran. I think from, from my point of view as a player, um, I feel much more informed and much more confident in the decision I'm going to make as regards returning trying to play. Um, I think, first of all, thanks to Mary again for the information she gave us, very clear and concise. Um, but she highlighted one thing. I, I think we, we recognise this both as a society and as obviously people involved in the GA, the importance of getting back into some form of humanity in life for players for supporters for kids keeping active so if we can look at doing that and stick to those guidelines and understand the risks that's involved i think we have a very good chance of of getting through this with a positive outcome um i will say that one of the reasons we want to do the podcast would be to inform anyone who has concerns or risks people will have varying um concerns here, Karen. and I've seen this down in training already, you know, there's some guys who probably aren't as concerned about it, um, you know, feel invincible in some way, they're fit, they're healthy, other people may have maybe people of risk close to them that, that other players don't know about, so, what I'd say is that inform your teammates, um, talk to them about it, stick to the guidelines and responsibilities you have to do, because it's hugely important that everyone buys into that, and Again, if you are concerned, hopefully this will enlighten you a bit um, and you can make the decision yourself to, to either stay and play this year or or opt out. And, and, and that is a viable option too because, you know, sports isn't everything. Um, our health and our safety is the most important thing for us and our close ones. So um, overall, I'm, I'm, it's great to have her on and, and to hear her say those things. And I feel much more confident now about trying to play and hopefully everything else.
2: Yeah, and I think, uh, look, a huge thanks again to Professor Mary Horgan Um, That's it for the player's voice for this week. Hope you enjoyed that. And uh, it's available across all our social media channels and also across all the usual places that you can get your podcasts. Until the next time, thanks for listening.